Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. We all know continuing education and workforce development divisions, you know, the units that offer non-degree programming, need to play a central role in supporting institutional responsiveness and growth. But more often than not, leaders only focus on the outcomes that these divisions drive and rarely think about the infrastructure they need to drive those outcomes. The team at Destiny Solutions in collaboration with The Evolution developed a white paper to help explain the role IT systems can play in supporting growth. To download, visit evolutionwith3ls.com slash system and get the inside track on the importance of tailor-made tech. Again, that's evolutionwith3ls.com slash system. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Edip Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. My name, despite what you may think, audience. I don't always forget to say my name, considering the amount of pressure Elizabeth puts on me to get her intro right. However, um, uh, today I will be successful in saying my name, Dr. Joe Salustio, always with me, Elizabeth Liba, better known as Liz, better known as the symbol uh, representing Liz. Uh, I don't know what to call you anymore, Liz. It's just getting out of hand at this point. And, and the <laughs> amount of pressure I feel to get your introduction right is just off Aww. the charts. I can't, uh, it's, I just can't handle it. I, I go to bed. Aww. I can't sleep at night. You know, it's this pressure cooker. How are you? I'm awesome. But you know, they always say pressure bust pipes, but it also makes diamonds. So I'm just trying to help you to be better and mentor you onto, you know, bigger and better things. So oh, man. I, feel, I feel mentored. I feel I'm the mentee and you're the mentor. I, I appreciate all the attention that you give. I still Absolutely. remain around 7,300 followers on LinkedIn. So the help you uh, promised to provide me has not yet yielded any results. Uh, and, and again, as the audience may have heard in a previous episode, I was somewhere around 6,000 followers. I moved to 7,000, which I thought was pretty spectacular. And in that time, Liz went from 20,000 to 33,000, which is just a tad bit better. But, you know, who's counting? Uh, is what I'd like to say. And who's keeping track or, or being competitive? Definitely not me. So oh, that's okay. That's all right. We're going to get you there. We're going to get you there for sure. All right. Well, that's a, a promise. And I'm leaving that in the recording. I'm not cutting that out. Anyway, on to very important discussions that we have uh, today. We've got a great guest for you guys, somebody that uh, has done some incredible things lately. His name is Chris Rinkus, and he is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Education at the U.S. Department of Education. Chris, how are you? And sorry you had to listen to that. Hey, Joe. Uh, no, no problem at all. It's good to talk to you. You know, let me say up front, as someone with only a lowly 1,500 followers on LinkedIn, I really appreciate you guys being still willing to have me on the show. Um, you know, it shows, it shows a lot of grace on your part, so thank you. Oh, are you kidding me with the work you're doing to, for families and kids in, in, across the U.S.? Every show that's related to anything should have you on. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I, I mean that because I've got two. We were talking before we started recording, Chris. I've got two kids, six and three. Liz, I think she's got a 21-year-old and a five-year-old in there, Liz? Yeah, that my daughter just turned 22 and my son, just, they, they literally just had birthday. So yeah, I have one older in college and another one that's like first grade. And you recently helped and led relief of $50 billion distributed across institutions, uh, schools across the United States in record time. Uh, well, how did you do that? And how did that feel leading your team and, and working with the teams at the Department of Ed to get all those dollars out? Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, and Liz, good for you. Um, with those kids, boy, I can't imagine having that gap. I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old and just having two years apart is, is really difficult to tell you. The Doesn't truth. it feel though, Chris, you could be like, hey, 21-year-old, go watch the five-year-old while I go watch TV. I mean, it kind of feels like that's the way it would go. I would hope so, but I, I imagine it's not that easy, right? It's not that easy. I wish it was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
if uh, if they ever are looking for babysitting opportunities, you just let me know. Um, so, Joe, to your question, I yeah. mean, yeah, it was it's been a it's been a pretty uh, it's been a pretty wild uh, three months for a, for a couple of reasons, but in no small part, you know, due to the fact that there was a relief package passed by Congress in December. It was a really important piece of legislation, bipartisan, um, and the main thrust of it for education was to get a whole lot more money out to K-12 schools and institutions of higher education. And, uh, you know, we felt pretty strongly at the Department of Education that if we were going to make a difference, it was going to be getting this money out as quickly as we could so that, especially in the case of K-12 schools, they could reopen as quickly as possible. Uh, and we've started to see some of the positive effects of that. I think, you know, you're seeing more and more cities around the country start to, to reopen, even um, if it's, you know, just in a small way. And I live in Washington, D.C., for example, and they just opened up uh, on Tuesday of this week for about 9,000 students. Um, and that's exactly the type of progress we were hoping to see. Uh, you know, the fact that so many kids have been out of school for so long now is is made for a extraordinarily difficult situation. Um, you know, you see reports in the news about rises in the mental health crises among students, even things like adolescent suicide, which is heartbreaking. Um, and so, you know, our small part was to try to get this money into the hands of um, education systems leaders so that they could buy the things that they need in order to reopen school as quickly as possible. You know, Chris and Liz, you when you think about how this stuff works, right? Government says, here's $50 billion. It's going to go to this group of employees and, and people who work at the Department of Education. And then they actually have to do the work to get that out. The significance of what you and that small group of folks did for, for schools, Chris, is, is really unbelievable. And and we're, it's such an honor to have you on the show to know that the impact, I mean, and I don't know, maybe you don't think about this, but the impact that you've had to families in the United States to, to, because I can, I can promise you there's parents going absolutely bonkers, crazy with schools closed. And so smoothing those transitions, uh, giving those schools dollars to invest in PPE and safe openings is just an incredible, incredible accomplishment. Do you, do you sit back? Do you think about that impact that, that you made? Or is this just sort of natural for you to help? Well, that's a good question. You know, my, uh, my wife and kids help keep me pretty humble. Um, so, you know, even if I have a particularly productive day at work that I'm proud of, you know, when I come home, it's very quickly back into the routine of, you know, helping get the kids changed and fed and, and to sleep. And so, uh, and so nobody, to a point. nobody cares about your day when <laughs> somebody's trying to get, get food shoved into a kid's mouth, right? That nobody cares, uh, got to eat and put them to bed. And then, and then maybe you could talk about it, right? That, that's right. And, you know, my, my wife stays at home with the, the kids most of the time. And so, although a number like 50 billion is big and looks really good on paper, um, the cold hard reality is, you know, the job that she's doing is extraordinarily difficult. You know, there's a lot of moms and dads in the situation. And so it's actually, I think it's good to stay humble, you know, have folks remind you that, um, you know, no matter what your day job might be, um, you've got to take care of business at, at home. And, and that's what's going to be really important. So, you know, so in any case, it's humbling. I, I do reflect back on the time of the department. And I'm, I'm proud of what we accomplished. I mean, I, you know, what I'm most proud of, especially with respect to that money getting out so quickly is, it's just when, when you're in government, you know, kind of regardless of political party, it's very easy to lose sight of um, the folks on the ground. And if you don't hold in mind that objective, you know, in this case, get money to schools so that they can buy PPE and hire new teachers and, you know, put in air filters, you quickly discover, um, you know, that people wanna layer on different reporting requirements and more paperwork and red tape. And so, um, you know, to me, keeping, that practitioner view um, about what's important really serves as a, as a true North and helps me to be able to go to my colleagues, you know, in the federal government and say, this would be a nice to have, but it's not a must have. And so we're gonna forego this paperwork or this report because 
our primary objective is speed. And although what you're suggesting is not unreasonable, it detracts from speed and, and thus we won't be doing it. And so, you know, that I'm, I'm pretty proud of being able to preserve that mindset because it's very easy to lose it in government. Um, and I think it's really important if you're in it to try to get things done. So much like in Liz, I'm, uh, it's your turn, and, and but I just want to transition you uh, with this question. Much like Liz complaining about how I introduce her, no matter how well I do it, <laughs> is there always a complainer out there, Chris? I mean, you're distributing this money, even though it might be predetermined how the money gets distributed. Is there just, you know, I always liken it to IT, you know, IT folks, people work in information technology. There's never, if you think about it, there's never anyone that, that calls up IT and goes, hey, my computer's working exceptionally well today. Thank you, IT department. Uh, you know, nobody does that. And, and you know, as you, in your job, did you feel some of that, that no matter, and, and this is a serious question, no matter how well or how fast or how specific, there was always somebody just not satisfied with the result? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, truthfully, in public, in K-12 public education, there's something of a constant there. Um, you know, when I was at DC public schools, I mean, people, you know, residents, community members, parents, they'd call you out. And oftentimes it was deserved. You know, sometimes it felt a little bit unfair, um, but it's hard to blame them given, you know, the performance of the school district over decades and decades. Uh, and so I, I've developed a pretty thick skin. Um, you know, I also think you have to view critical feedback on something of a spectrum. Um, you know, there's one end of the spectrum that are just haters and, and that's unfortunate. I think there's no pleasing them. And yes, even when you're giving away money, there are going to be people that find problems with it. Um, I also think along that spectrum, it can become increasingly more constructive where you get to a point that you know, good and reasonable dis people can disagree um, on any course of action. And so I think the constructive feedback that I heard while we were at the department oftentimes came, came from, you know, well-intentioned district superintendents, state superintendents, um, you know, membership organizations that re represent people like that, where they would challenge us to, to you know, for example, do more. Um, the first relief package we put out in the spring of last year was about $13 billion for K-12 and another, uh, I mean, about the same amount for higher ed. And uh, that's a lot of money. On the other hand, for the 15,000 school districts, it's not that much. And so, you know, people really pushed us and pushed their elected um, officials to, to try to do more. And although it took a long time, the end result was, you know, almost triple that same amount going out before the end of the year. And so, um, you know, I, I welcome it. The, the last the last point I will say is just wrong on my school district experience. Um, as as challenging and sometimes frustrating as critical feedback can be, um, there's another scenario. You know, you would go and visit low performing schools, uh, and no parents would show up at all, and and that was really the type of situation that made me sad because uh, for any number of reasons, you know those folks were completely disengaged. And so I'm, you know, even when I'm getting kind of, uh, you know, criticized, I try to pull the tiny bit of gratitude for the fact that people are willing to engage, they care enough to engage. Um, and that's ultimately the type of, you know, parent that we want in the education system, you know, the ones that will advocate on behalf of their, their families and their kids. Liz, why don't you come on in and, and don't tell Chris that the last person that we brought on the show uh, that worked for the Department of Education, Dr. Chris McCarran, is, I think you kidnapped him. Did you not? Uh, I, I don't know if you <laughs> let him go. I, I tried to. I, I was actually trying to pass a collection plate because he, he preached a sermon, but I, I don't mm -hmm. know. That was a really uh, great conversation. And this is a really um, interesting conversation as well, because when I think about school system, K through 12, even though I don't work in K through 12 currently, I'm in higher ed, just like Joe, and I work on the faculty side. I found it interesting what you were saying about the the parents being engaged in the in the the amount of funding that's needed to try to make a difference. And I agree with you that a lot of times, you know, some of the monies that we're talking about sounds like a lot, but it can be a drop in the bucket. Can you speak, Chris, a little bit about? And there's a couple of things that you that you touched on that I really want to dive deeper into. 
when we think about this funding, I always think about it through an equity lens. So I was uh, raised in Fort Lauderdale, went to a 90% black school and 83 or so percent of those children were considered below poverty. Uh, I think about the same 81%, I think qualify for free lunch. And I was in that number. So I think about our schools and how a lot of schools in some of these predominantly black and brown neighborhoods are not necessarily uh, funded uh, in the same manner and uh, don't have the same advantages and resources to kind of frame it in the terms of what we're going through now and you guys having to the department of ed having to distribute these additional fundings to help with the COVID response one of the things that became glaringly evident and myself and Joe both work in the online space is the digital divide, how we were trying to pivot to online in order to help the students and obviously as well, the teachers stay safe, but a lot of the students don't necessarily have access to internet or they might not have a computer in the house. If they do have a computer in the house, maybe everybody's trying to share it and they might not have adequate access to it. And uh, can you speak a little bit to that? And what are some of the conversations that are being held in some of these spaces where maybe that's something that hadn't been considered before? And, and how do you think we as a society on you know just the government level, but also just as community level and even uh, some of the private entities, what can we do to help with some of these glaring inequities that we have been revealed over the past year? Thanks, Liz. Um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I'd, I'd like to talk about the funding inequities. Um, so I don't want to lose track of that. But I, I, if you wouldn't mind, you know, the digital divide really strikes me as one of these issues where there's general agreement on all sides that we need to do something to help low-income families, rural families um, have access to high-speed internet. And, and also, and frankly, to your point, you know, we need to ensure that they have adequate devices. Um, you know, I won't forget early on in the pandemic, I saw someone um, tweet that, you know, they were a teacher and they tweeted out that one of their students in sort of the earliest shifts to online learning um, was writing a, a five page paper on their phone. And, you know, it just, it, it kind of breaks your heart. I, I mean, even, you know, I, I understand, you know, younger generations maybe are a little more proficient than others at using the phones, but I mean, come on, like, you know, you, you should have, every kid should have access to a desk um, and, and a way to, you know, a laptop device, something that they feel comfortable writing in long form. Um, and obviously we don't have that. And so, you know, to me, I think it really comes down to, we've got to collectively do a better job um, ordering our priorities. And I think for me, one of the biggest lessons of the past year is in K-12 education, we tried to do a whole bunch of things at once. And I think we did them all relatively poorly. Um, you know, we put out, we made this big shift to online learning. We put out a bunch of new online content and platforms um, and very quickly heard dissatisfaction from students and parents. Um, very little effort went into shoring those up, I think over the summer and early fall. And, uh, you know, folks, I think, sort of assumed by fall, we would be in a position to return back to in-person instruction. And so almost like, why bother? Um, but now, you know, we've had to live with those same flawed platforms for almost a year. And to me, how this relates to the digital divide is there are enough resources out there right now for us to make a substantial dent in the digital divide if we collectively agree that should be our number one priority. Um, and I think it merits being the top priority, but there are also other worthy priorities. And so to me, part of the challenge here is, you know, K-12 education is very decentralized. Um, the federal government has an interesting role. States have a little more authority, but even their authority is, is fragmented. And so, you know, I think the collective part of this is we almost have to band together as, as parents and say, this is the number one thing right now. We need to make sure that every kid has high-speed internet and put our resources towards it. Because if or until we get to that point, I just don't know that you know we're gonna be able to single that out as the one as the top thing we want fixed. And if we don't do that, then you're gonna see what is a large sum of money um, divided up to address any number of concerns. And unfortunately, you know, the big divide persists. Um, 
So I, I know that's not a perfect answer, but but to me, you know, I, I I really start to think like, how can we mobilize around our top priorities so that you know policymakers, lawmakers understand this is what the public wants to see changed. And I guess uh, as a follow up to that, and something that I think about as well is, and, and it kind of I, I guess stems back to the uh, question about the the inadequate funding. We had a uh, president of Xavier University that came on a few months ago, and one of the things he talked about in K through twelve was that a lot of people are unaware of the inequities, and they don't really understand that that foundation. If you're thinking about college graduation, and and Joe and I talk about this all the time, that there seems to be a shift where people are saying, well, college isn't really worth it. And, you know, maybe it's it's student loan debt, you shouldn't take on that amount of debt. And is there really a good return on investment, as far as getting a college degree? We know that black and brown children, uh, young adults, when they go to college tend to have overall college retention graduation rates um, need to be better. And they're definitely not where they need to be, especially for students of color. I think the conversation with the president, uh, Dr. Burnett from Xavier, one of the things that Dr. Barrett, one of the things that really surprised um, him, and it surprises me too, is how many people don't really understand that our K through 12 schools don't have adequate funding in determined, uh, don't probably have adequate funding overall, but especially in those marginalized areas or, or areas that uh, are less affluent, the funding and the resources are really not equitable. And then that sets a student up on a, a kind of a domino effect where they're not able to necessarily go to college. And if they go to college, you're not prepared and then they're less likely to graduate. Can you speak to some of the conversations that might be had and what those that maybe are in the positions to uh, work on policy for some of these? Um, and like you said, it is, it is fragmented. But how do we as a nation kind of come to grips with that idea that everyone may be thinking that if you go to K through 12, you just have the same education and everything is, you know, as long as you, you go. And I kind of thought about what you said too about the parents are not engaged. And it kind of made me think about my parents. My parents were immigrants and uh, they were working two jobs. And, and I think they maybe wanted to be engaged, but they didn't really understand how to engage or they maybe were, were working, you know, a day shift and a night shift. And, and by the time they got home, they kind of just flopped into bed and did it again. And they did that my entire life. And I don't recall ever seeing them, each of them, maybe when I was maybe in college, maybe at, at some point they kind of didn't work two jobs. But how do we address overall the fact that the parents and the resources and everything that's needed to support the, the communities is not really in place. And then the children are... I think one of the things someone said, and I think maybe Joe can speak to this if, if it was said on the show or not, I'm pretty sure it was, that some of us are scared in education that the children are coming to school for a safe space because where they're at at home is not safe because those environments mm-hmm. may be abusive or the, there's just not adequate you know, resources in the home. Like a lot of times the parents are sending the child to school because the child, that's maybe the only meal the child will get because there's just no resources in the home. What, what do you think about some of those things and, and what are some of the conversations that you've heard had at some of the higher levels in terms of, of what we as a country should do to try to reckon with some of that. Yeah, thanks, Liz. You know, so I mean, in my career, I spent a number of years at the District of Columbia Public Schools. You know, most recently, I spent several years at the Department of Education. And I think what's reassuring is in both of those places, we accepted as a basic premise, the concept that uh, the students with the greatest needs should receive the most resources. Um, and that might not sound like that innovative a concept. Uh, you know, I think we all sort of naturally into it. it on the other hand, it's, a, it's something that has not been um, done in most K-12 school districts for, you know, I don't know, I mean, since their inception. You know, most school districts and continue to still um, take their pie and carve it up um, in equal shares according to the number of kids that attend a, a school. Um, and what that ignores, obviously, is that within that student population, there are different student groups with greater needs, you know, students with disabilities, English language learners, um, and such. So, so to me, you know, we've got to get to a place where everyone who works in, you know, at the systems level of education accepts that concept of resource equity um, and works towards goals that reflect it. And you know, when I was at DC Public Schools, 
we very much implemented that concept in our resource allocation process. I mean, we, we quantified student needs according to those objective types of characteristics, you know, whether a student comes from a low-income family, whether the student, you know, we, we frankly did some innovative stuff as well. I mean, we linked um, our resource allocation systems to other local government information so that we could even see things like this school enrolls, um, you know, 100 students whose families receive financial assistance through the federal government and therefore understanding, you know, that's a marker of low income and likely a marker of need, we could um, dial up the resources that we sent to that school district in response. Um, and, and I just think that should be common everywhere. Um, we have the, the data and the technology to be smarter about how we allocate resources and we can really measure um, in ways that may have been harder in the past. So the only thing preventing people from doing that is, um, is really will, it's not skill. I mean, this, is, this can be done anywhere. And so, um, you know, at least at the department and at DCPS, I think we really did those things. It's changing slowly, but I think it needs to accelerate. Um, and the end result of that is, at least within the existing resources we have for education, system, leader would be, system leaders would be prioritizing um, those kids with the greatest needs to receive the most support. I'm so glad you said that. Before I let Joe jump right back in here, because I know he has a ton of questions, the will versus skill and just recognizing it's not an equality issue because if you just spread the pie out equally, you're not taking into account that there are going to be certain population of students that have greater needs and just being aware of that and just understanding that, okay, so that area has more needs and put more resources. It seems like you said, it seems like common sense, but if that could be implemented, I'm sure that we would see so much difference just in outcomes for the students. And then, I mean, outcomes for the country, because you've supported these students, these students are going to go on and go to college or go into a trade or do anything to be successful. And then as an economy and as a nation, there's innovation, there's invention, there's entrepreneurship, there's uh, doctors and lawyers and professionals, engineers, nurses, whatever the case may be, we have to start with K through 12. Like I always feel as though that's really the, where we should be innovating, right? We shouldn't be thinking just at like the level of adults, like entrepreneurship and let's like pour into the business community. What about the next generation? And I'm so glad you said that will versus skill because I, I really feel that was like a, a key takeaway for me there. So thank you for that. Well, and, and thank you. If I could add on just one other point, you, you, you kind of charted for me. Um, th there's obviously a moral case for doing this. Um, and I think you and I are probably in, a, in agreement about that. It just it makes sense and it's the right thing to do. Sure. Um, what, what I think people also miss is if for some reason the moral case isn't sufficiently appealing, I mean, there's a very practical side of this. And, and that was one of the motivating factors in DCPS. If you want to, and, and, it, and it's this, if you want to improve the performance of a very low performing school district like DC public schools, by necessity, you have to treat the lowest performing students differently than you have in the past. I mean, that's the only way you're going to close achievement gaps in such a way that the performance of the district as a whole will improve. And so, you know, to me, it's worth mentioning because I think I've been in conversations with CFOs, um, you know, who are a little more, uh, I don't know, I mean, truthfully, they're kind of like bean counters. You know, I, I was a bean counter at one point and the moral case isn't always something that they can compute. On the other hand, I think anybody should be able to understand if you work for an organization that is performing badly, um, you need to change what you're doing and improve the areas of worst performance if you want to improve um, your overall performance. And I would hope that even for some of the holdouts, you know, they might see that as an opportunity. This is really the way you can turn around a low performing school district in a relatively um, quick time and efficient way. Chris, I want to shift the conversation uh, slightly and talk about something that affects us in higher education all the time and, and uh, see how far uh, down uh, the, uh, the educational pipeline this goes. But, you know, one of the, comp uh, one of the complaints we always have in education, in, in higher ed, is that students can't write anymore. I don't know if that's due to technology, if it's due to 
uh, changes in curriculum and K through 12 or the, the, you know, I don't know what it's due to. I just wanted to know if you have any insight around that. I mean, I think in Liz, you, your faculty could probably back me up on that, but I'll have some faculty members come to me and go, you know, students writing in shorthand text message right now at the graduate level, like what, how did this happen? How did they get through the bachelor's degree? How did they get through high school without being able to, to write? It's a lost skill in many respects. How is K through 12 addressing that from your view? Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, I mean, I would zoom out a little bit to tell you the truth. You guys can tell me your reactions. Like, I, I, I it's interesting to hear the writing um, challenges. I can, I can see that. Uh, more frequently, what I hear from folks in higher ed and people who work on workforces, you know, that kids are graduating high school with no sense of financial literacy. Uh, with very few practical skills like how to, you know, use an Excel workbook um, or, you know, use HTML or even, um, you know, try to code, things like that. Uh, agreed, and, agreed, Chris, agreed on that all. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like for me, then the zoom out is, you know, I, I think, and we, we try to do some of this at the department. It's a little bit hard because of the fragmented nature of K-12, um, but we've got to get to a place where we are recognizing competencies and skills as the product of a high school education and, and ensuring that the academic standards are such that they are producing kids who have you know, these um, competencies and skills as opposed to what we have now, um, which is these content mastery standards that just seem to be either the wrong things or at best outdated things um, and so, you know, I, I, I always want to make space for kind of well-rounded education. And I know some kids respond better to um, STEAM than STEM. And, you know, there's a place for world history and English literature and such. But the bottom line is, um, you know, the modern workforce demands these um, basic skills like communication, financial literacy, um, you know, some data science, sort of computer fluency. Um, and it's it's crazy that we're not providing kids this. And, and what last point is, I mean, what it sets up, I'm sure you guys um, observe this, it sets up this, uh, this sort of track where kids almost have to uh, go to a two or four year university in order to be competitive in the workforce. Um, and, and that brings all of these implications on debt um, and, you know, what if they need to earn now and what if their family depends on them and such. Um, and so, you know, the high school credential just ends up being this kind of checkpoint on the way to a post-secondary degree, when in reality, I think it should have meaning as a credential in its own right. And then should a student choose to go on to a two or a four-year university or beyond, that's great, but at least they're able to make a choice. Whereas now, you know, sort of the limited value of the high school credential forces them um, into a trajectory that might not be ideal for for their career for their life and and it's you know and, and to me it feels eminently solvable like we just have to have the the willingness to go in and say you know as much as we appreciate um, this particular elective we think that we need to you know forego it in favor of teaching kids excel or, or perhaps even better you know, we think that we can accomplish all of this if school is simply eight to three, um, you know, eight months of the year, we think it needs to be nine to five and it needs to be 11 or 12 months per year. We were talking with uh, our, one of our previous guests. Um, boy, I'm going to get her last name wrong, Liz, Dr. Lynn Gangon, Gangon, I think it was. Anyway, she was the... Um, Oh, gosh, I can't remember the association. She was the president and CEO of the Association for Higher Education Teachers Training. Um, and she was talking about teachers and one of the, the interesting effects of uh, COVID and COVID-19 is that it's made us rethink what a workday could look like for, for K through 12. And that, you know, it's designed, um, she was talking about, you know, not to get to, she says not to get gender, genderfied on this, but, you know, boys learn differently than, than girls, that it's, mm -hmm. that it's not designed right for boys to learn at the, that their right speed, um, you know, uh, kids that, that, that now could sleep in are more effective at learning because they're, 
their brain has time to wake up. I'm, I'm, she used more technical terms than I did. Right, Liz. Um, but, but you get the point. It was something like that. Like, are we going to reimagine? And Liz, you've been a proponent of the three-year high school diploma. Like how Absolutely. many kids could complete high school in less time, less time. Um, and so are there, are there disruptions in K through 12 happening as quickly and rapidly and as significantly as we see them happening in higher ed? Well, a year ago, I would have said no. Um, I think today I would say yes by necessity. Um, and I think it's going to accelerate over the next 12 months. And that's primarily because, you know, many students lost seven, eight, 10 months of meaningful instruction over the past year. Uh, and we're going to have to figure out how to put an additional eight months of learning into the conventional school calendar. Um, and that's going to necessitate nights, weekends, summers in way, you know, online in ways that um, many school districts have not previously had to face. So, so I, I do think we're going to see, um, you know, some real acceleration there. Uh, you know, what, what we've already seen that I think holds promise, um, you know, there's a number of states, Florida is a good example, that even at the state level has really pushed out a bunch of non-traditional ways to attend school. Um, they, have a, they have a Florida online school um, that's basically anytime kids can enroll in it full-time and access learning on demand. I think that holds a lot of promise. Um, you know, there's still some kinks to be worked out, but uh, more than anything, I think that willingness to try new things um, is a really important mindset that, you know, Florida has, but not everyone does. Um, and so, you know, if we're really gonna do this successfully, there's gonna have to be that shift where we take some risks to try new ways you know, to deliver instruction to these kids. Um, and we also have to set up systems so that we can fail quickly if it's not working. Um, and that type of innovation is, you know, it's just not something that every place is used to, to doing, but there's just, it's basic math. There's no other way for us to fit the extra learning that's needed to remediate the losses that we've incurred over the past year. And so, you know, I'm hopeful we talked about the money earlier. I'm hopeful with this infusion of money. I'm hopeful with, you know, the sort of acute need uh, that people are willing to try some different things to try to deliver instruction. Because what's interesting, I suppose, is, you know, the contrast between K-12 and higher ed is, you know, I don't, I don't know that it didn't have some hiccups, but, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that higher ed was much better positioned to shift to um, full-time online learning than K-12 is. And so, it can be done. Um, we just have to figure out how and kind of be willing to try. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that more states are going to do it. And maybe, you know, there's more lessons to be gleaned from the hired experience about how to do it successfully. Liz. I had a question and this is something that came up as a, a result of me posting about Black History Month, because as we all know, it's Black History Month. And um, I actually wrote an article for LinkedIn uh, News. They were doing like a sequence on Black professionals and talked about this concept of how learning Black history, as I just earlier alluded to, I, I grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood and you see a lot of hopelessness around you, uh, that narrative that you see in maybe the textbooks or what you see in the media tends to resonate and sometimes it's hard to undo some of that negative um, imagery, I believe. So I talked about the idea that Black history was one of the things that was very instrumental, learning about all these brilliant minds and uh, learning about these brilliant event, uh, inventors really helped me to reframe the way I looked at myself as a, a young Black child growing up in a, a pretty, we'll say, it wasn't like the worst neighborhood in the world, but it definitely wasn't the best. And the school that was I went to definitely was not in a very good neighborhood at all. So one of the things as I was writing the article was that I found that I started to do research on Black history as a curriculum and 
found just from my research that there isn't a set standard a set of standards for teaching black history there's no national curriculum it's largely up to like you said it's very fragmented in k-12 so it's largely up to the states as to whether they teach black history or not i think florida which i would say my, my daughter actually graduated from florida virtual school so florida oh, wow. um has actually been uh, uh one of the schools i would say one of the handful of schools where they do have the the offering of black history as a part of the curriculum one of the, when I did pose this as an issue, one of the things that people were commenting in terms of my post was, well, well, what do we do about that? Like, okay, we see that's not happening. We definitely see, can see that would be a problem. For those that are reflecting on the, the state of black folk in America and the idea that history can be an integral part of us understanding and learning about how we move forward as a nation and, and uh, try to tackle some of these important conversations and questions, what would you suggest? You know, some of them, they were posing the question to me and I was too, totally clueless because I'm like, well, I would assume that states would have to adopt curriculum or the federal government would have to say, well, you can't graduate high school without math and English and science. So that would be, or history, American history of government. Uh, what do you say to people that ask, you know, it's a pivotal time in our country that uh, why black history isn't something that we study more uh, carefully? Yeah, that's a great it's a great point, Liz. I mean, I think a couple of things, you know, I, I agree with you. Um, and I think the research bears out that when students, you know, experience culturally responsive curriculum, they perform better, you know, and, and it makes logical sense. I mean, a, another way to put it is learning should be fun. And if you're teaching kids the things that they want to know more about, you're going to have better engaged students. And I think, you know, teaching kids history that they can you know, see themselves in or relate to is, is really important for those reasons. Um, I, I want to answer your question like this, you, you know, I think oftentimes, and I've done it myself in this conversation, you know, the fact that K-12 education is so decentralized um, can make nationwide progress um, slow or difficult, you know, is, is often seen in a negative light. And, and there are you know, there's sometimes good reasons for that, but there's also uh, an upshot to um, this fragmented system. And, and I think in this particular instance, what it is, is, you know, it's actually, it actually should feel straightforward for parents to go and go in front of their school board um, or, or go to their, you know, school district um, central office and ask those types of questions. Um, I mean, when I was at DC public schools, we had a very um, active parent population, you know, and, and I mean, we, we did our part, I think, to create forums in which they could share feedback. But when we received that feedback, nine times out of 10, we acted on it. Um, you know, I mean, we have to make sure that, you know, the ideas make sense for the district, but so long as they do, you know, I think school districts can and should function like democracies. Um, and respond to, you know, their constituents in that way. And so um, it's kind of a fancy way of saying to your point, like, you know, parents, community members should see their school boards as forums for discussion about the direction in which the local school system is going. And I think in some places that feels very comfortable and familiar, and in others, it, it doesn't. Um, but the whole reason this system this K-12 system is set up in this way is that it's designed to have these much smaller units that are more responsive to local concerns than the system would be if it were just one, you know, monolithic um, department in Washington. And so, um, you know, I, I think now more than ever, it, it's an apt time to, to be engaging school boards in this way. Um, you know, there are good curriculums out there that are culturally responsive. Um, they have research behind them. And, it, you know, whether it's Black history or, um, you know, frankly, I hear from folks who think that American history is taught um, in a too simplistic way. You know, those are the types of things that folks should engage a school board. And if their school board isn't responsive, like, that's a different problem. And, and you know, I've, I've also seen plenty of instances where parents have mobilized, they felt like they haven't been heard. And in a year's time, you know, that school board has changed. Um, so, I, so I really do think that it is a, it is an exercise that can pay off. It's, it's not, uh, you know, 
sometimes when people say go talk to your elected official it feels like a little bit of a dead end i think school boards are kind of unique in this country in the sense that they really can and should be responsive to parent concerns in a way that's immediate um, and, and should be satisfying. All right, Chris, we want to be sensitive to your time, my friend, and uh, give you our final two questions. By the way, thank you for coming on. It's been enlightening to hear the K through 12 perspective in, in your work at the department. Uh, last two questions. What did we miss? By the way, instead of asking it like this, what is next for Chris Rinkus? How about that? What's next for you, Chris, as you move on beyond uh, your time at the department? And number two, what does the future of education look like in the United States and beyond? Well, I appreciate that question, Joe. So I'll say for my part quickly, because it's a little boring. So I am taking the next couple of weeks to, to spend some time with my family and, and decompress. Um, and I'm going to, you know, be ready to announce, I think, um, probably sometime in, in March. Uh, so if folks are listening or you all, you know, want to hear more, I mean, by all means, you know, follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm happy to, to talk to folks about it. Um, and then, you know, the big question, where do things go from here? Boy, we are, um, we are both faced with a, a sort of unprecedented challenge and an unprecedented opportunity. Um, you know, I, I just, it, it's impossible to, to underestimate um, just how disruptive this past year has been on kids. You know, I mentioned a little earlier, there's a story in the New York Times about um, rising rates of adolescent suicide that they can't definitively tie to school closures, but they think um, anecdotally, you know, there's some relationship and uh, that is, as someone who's worked in K-12 education for most of my career, that is, that is crushing, um, that is crushing. And, you know, there, that's obviously the extreme, but there's plenty um, that falls below that, you know, kids who have had mental health crisis, kids who have lost learning, um, you know, all as a result of the fact that schools have been closed for, for so long. And so, um, you know, I, I really think that there is a moral imperative that we get schools reopened soon and we get to work on how we um, make up for the lost time. And I think that's where the opportunity comes in. Um, K-12 education is a very, very, very traditional uh, thing. You know, it's resistant to change. I've been a school district person myself. I can admit it. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to convince us sometimes that um, you know, this brand new idea is going to work. But I think accepting that, you know, we can recognize we've got to try some new things if we're going to overcome, um, you know, what's happened. And so I'm, I'm actually optimistic. Uh, I've seen more states and school districts put out plans for how they're going to make use of this summer, how they're going to extend the school year, extend the school day. Um, and and I, that, that to me is the start. We've got to um, we've got to take a a different view of um, the school day and what the commitment to school looks like for our young people because as much as it's meant to create you know motivated creative young people um, there's also a significant element of school which is preparation for the workforce. Um, ideally, you know, a ticket to upward mobility to the middle class, um, you know, opportunities to go on to post-secondary education opportunities. And so I, I think we frankly need to impose a little more um, workplace-like order to school. I mean, there's just different expectations in the workplace about the number of hours you spend doing a thing, you know. Um, and to me, if we're going to try to make up some of this lost ground, we've got to think about how we make school feel a little bit more like um, a professional career. And I think if we can do that, there's also opportunities to, to, truthfully, to make it a little more fun. I mean, kids should have more say in the courses that they um, choose to attend. I think it should be provided, you know, ideally on a more on-demand basis so that, um, you know, kids could adjust to the schedule that makes the most sense for them, you know, whether it's sleep or work. Um, but I, I really think we have a chance to do it. Uh, we just have to seize that chance. And so, you know, looking ahead, um, there's not going to be a, a one solution that fixes it everywhere. It's a big country. But I think what I would like to see 
is that universal um, mindset. You know, we can't ignore the problems that we created over the past year. We've got to try something new and different. Uh, I've heard people say, I think it rings true. School wasn't even that great for a lot of kids to begin with before the pandemic. And so we have to take this opportunity to rethink um, K-12. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to do it. But, you know, if we put kids and the learning first, um, I think we'll come up with some, with some good solutions. And so uh, I'm optimistic for the future. I think it's going to be a hard road, um, but it's promising how many schools are reopening. And I think I'll end on this, perhaps more than anything, um, you know, I've been in K-12 education for over 10 years. It has never featured in the national dialogue the way that it has, uh, you know, over the past year. And so I would love for K-12 education to continue to be a part of the national dialogue because it needs um, help. And uh, I think it only gets that help if everyone is paying attention to it. And so, you know, we should hold our politicians, our school boards, our national leaders accountable. Let's reopen school and then let's make it better. Um, and I think if we do that, we really can. Um, you know, this country is capable of doing anything if we put our minds to it. And we just need to put our minds to, to K-12 schools. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. He's Chris Rinkus, and he's the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Education at the U.S. Department of Education. Chris, thank you for your service and getting all of those funds out and everything that you've done for the sector, uh, the K through 12 sector over the last four years that you were uh, a part of the office. And uh, it was a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you both for having me. It was really wonderful speaking with you. Um, and I, I appreciated the opportunity. Hey, everybody, we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edup Experience. To learn more about the Edup Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.